welcome to this week's episode of Ireland Creates, a podcast about Ireland's storytellers. I'm your host, Ashling O'Rourke. If this is your first time listening, thank you for joining us. Each week, I speak with a creative based here in Ireland or with a connection to this Emerald Isle about their lives, their creative practice and what storytelling means to them. This is episode 16, so if you haven't already done so, I'd encourage you to check out the full back catalogue. It's full of conversations with just a selection of Ireland's talented creators. On last week's episode, I asked you to get in touch with suggestions for future guests and emphasise the importance of making the podcast as inclusive as possible. And I'd like to take a moment to thank those of you who got in touch with me to suggest a number of people. So I now have a fantastic list of future guests for Ireland Creates. That offer, though, does remain open. You can always get in contact with me through my website, ashlingorourke.com or on Instagram at ashlingmakesstories. And now on to today's guest. Talented, I don't think, does this woman justice. She's an actor, a writer, an activist and more. I'll let her introduce herself. Hi, my name is Noelle Brown. I'm an actor, a playwright and adoption rights activist. And also a stand-up comedian, which is recent. Well, Noelle Brown, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk to us here on Ireland Creates, the podcast about storytellers here in Ireland. Now, Noelle, you are a very busy woman. You have been to the forefront at a week on week in the media here in Ireland in the past couple of months. But... Just to, to begin your story, for people who might not be familiar with you and, and your work, can you take me right back to your younger days? And I know my passion is about storytelling and you went on to, to do that in such a variety of ways. I'm fascinated to know, I suppose, what kind of a child you were. Were you into art and that kind of thing as a youngster? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I loved writing. Um, I mean, I, I used to write a lot of very bad poetry and stuff like that, but I also loved acting. Um, I always wanted to act. And I did a lot of amateur drama and stuff. And I was very lucky in the school I was in, Ashton in Cork, we had our own theatre. So, oh, wow. Yeah, it was amazing. So I was terrible at hockey. So drama was what I was, was drawn to. So we put on our own plays there, um, uh, starting with The Crucible. You know, it was very ambitious projects as well. It wasn't, you know, kind of kids shows that we put on. We made damn sure we did really, really good productions. Uh, we had a fantastic drama teacher there, Stephen Daunt. Um, and we did musicals. So I, when I finished in Ashton, I actually took another year there to do a secretarial course so I could continue to do more plays. So um, I always loved it. I didn't think I would become an actor because, um, I mean, I was fairly outgoing, but um, I thought I just, you know, I didn't have the kind of personality to be an actor. So I thought, oh, I'll be a writer or I'll be a journalist or something. And then the acting just wouldn't go away. Um, so I moved to Dublin in 1987. Uh, there was no full-time training courses in Ireland, so I did a short-term six-week course in the Gaty School of Acting, which had only been around for two years or so. And nowadays, like the Gaty School of Acting, so many names have gone through those doors uh, and come, come out and gone on to, to wonderful careers. But Absolutely. at that stage, you know, you said the acting, I, the bug just wouldn't go away. What was it about acting that you loved so much? 
Um, I, I think it was just the, the trying on different personalities. I was a good, I was a good mimic, um, and I, you know, I was always doing impressions of people and stuff like that. And I just loved the idea of acting. I was passionate about film stars, and um, I was, you know, it started to go to the theatre as well. And I just loved live performance, and I loved acting. Um, looking back on it, I think also, I suppose um, I'm, I'm an adoptee. And the, 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 I mean, a lot of the, uh, teenagers are drawn to, you know, drama and stuff like that. But particularly as, as adoptees, when you're when you start to think about your identity, I've spoken to a lot of people uh, at that age that I was in my teens and stuff that were drawn into drama and theatre um, as a way to just, you know, question your identity and who you were. Um, I, I think I really think it's connected to that because I didn't really think I had, you know, enough of an outgoing personality to really decide to be an actor but I just kept pulled into it um, and I felt the fear and I did it anyway I suppose. Was it in a way therapeutic? Yeah I, it was I suppose I mean it was challenging I suppose as well you know what I mean and it's such um, it's such a rush of adrenaline as well you know what I mean that you're you're absolutely terrified but you do it you perform and you feel amazing afterwards. But yeah, I suppose it was. I, I kind of was drawn to, you know, I could have played anything, you know, the, the, the range of parts that I ended up doing even in school. And, and as I went on and became a professional actor, they were always so varied, you know, um, and just immersing yourself in a character for that time and researching a character and learning how they walked, how they talked, how they moved, what they wore. I just, yeah, I think there must have been something healing in there, maybe as I was kind of trying to figure out or not figure out, but questioning aspects of my identity, I suppose, as, as an adoptee. Can I ask, when did you find out that you were adopted? Uh, I always knew, okay. um, I think from the time, I, you know, that I could put sentences together and understand. Um, my parents told me um, I was adopted when I was very young, which was kind of rare at the time, mm -hmm. you know, growing up in, in the 70s and 80s. It was still an awful lot of shame attached to it. So they were very open with me and said it straight away. And, you know, it was quite, you know, at the time people didn't tell their children. It stayed a secret or they told them when they were 21 or, you know, later in life or whatever. So it was actually quite progressive of them to tell me, about, you know, quite young. Do you remember how you felt about it? I thought it was something great, you know. I mean, they made me feel that it was something exciting and wonderful. Um, I think it was only, you know, as I, you know, the impact of, people outside of my family and the society, the society at large that made me feel, oh, God, maybe this isn't something great. And there was this shame around it. And, you know, mother and baby homes were still operating um, right up until 1996. So, you know, they would have been going on. So the worst thing that could happen to you, um, particularly in the 80s, was, you know, to get pregnant outside of marriage. And as I was the product of that, um, you know, I, I didn't talk about it too much publicly because I could see people's reactions. Um, and they were mostly negative or people would say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, like you said, something horrendous was wrong with you. So. Yeah. We do love to pass judgment on others, don't we? Yeah, we do. You know, we, we, we really do. Um, but, you know, I suppose that's those were the times as well. And I don't I don't blame people. I blame the church and state. I don't think society is responsible for what happened. It was I just think living in a very, very oppressive country. Um, ruled by the Catholic Church and, you know, in collusion with the Irish state. So, you know, it was ignorance, I think, at a lot of the time. Um, and it was, people didn't mean to be cruel. They just didn't know or didn't have the language around it, I suppose, you know. 
Noelle, I know you've done a lot of media around this, so people might be familiar with, with your name and, and your story. But for listeners who are not, can you, can you tell us how your adoption came about or what, what your adoption story is? Uh, well, basically, I was born in Basborough, Mother and Baby Home in 1965, um, which is about a mile and a half from where I grew up. And I was adopted from there at eight weeks old, which was, you know, um, I mean, it varied. It wasn't always eight weeks old, but I was eight weeks when I was adopted. So um, that was basically it. And, and I kind of grew up being adopted and I didn't really think about ever tracing birth family or anything. I grew up in a very happy family. And as society was changing, you know, and as the church was kind of loosening its grip a tiny bit. Um, I didn't have a problem with being adopted and I accepted the family I was in. I suppose in my teens then, I started to look around and realised that, you know, as people, you know, cousins and family members had their own children and stuff, the first question that people say when a baby is born is, uh, who do they look like? And I realised that there was nobody in my life that actually looked like me. And it kind of struck me and I suppose kind of went to the back of my mind then and I carried on with my life and I became an actor and everything and at the age of 35 I started tracing I still don't know why I made the first phone call but something something was happening I think um, and I started the tracing process which took me from 2002 until the end of uh, 2020 really to come to the end of my story there were so many impediments uh, from state agencies uh, and the church um, so I finally got to the end of it and, and, and traced my birth family on both sides eventually. But I just couldn't believe that it took that long. Yeah. You know, something that everybody in Ireland takes for granted. Um, and society had changed so much. You know what I mean? We'd all kind of grown up. We'd all, you know, the, 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 we were, the shame had been lifted. Um, but unfortunately, the the Irish state and the church hadn't really kept up with, you know, that people no longer looked at us as lesser or, you know, there was no shame attached to being born outside of marriage or anything else. But the legacy that I was left with, I think, was the thing that kind of startled me, that um, that I could be tr- still treated by that way in, in the eyes of the state and the church. It's very, very odd. Um, I think what people have found um, most shocking and galling about the story of the mother and baby homes in Ireland Um is that difficulty in tracing your records now? Like, it's one thing to say that as a society we did terrible things a long time ago, but the the fact now, I think as a society we like to see ourselves as being a very progressive and liberal and secular nation, that the assumption would be if you found out you were adopted, you'd have to, you'd ring up some department, the process would be very easy, you'd fill out a couple of forms and then you'd be given your details. Um, but then Absolutely. to hear from someone like you that it took so long to get your information not not something else like your birth information something that you own it's just it is still shocking it is yeah and and society's not to blame for that i know you know recently we had our t-shirt come on and, and apologize on behalf of society and it's society we're not to blame here you know what yeah. I mean? it yeah. goes much higher than that it was successive governments and the icy grip that the that the Catholic Church had, but yeah, I mean, I was stunned by it, and I think people who were close to me, particularly, were going, "I can't believe you don't have a birth cert. I can't believe that you don't have medical information. I can't believe that you've had to go through all of this." And it still happens, you know, when I when I talk to people, people I'm close to, people I'm not close to, they get really upset on my behalf, and I realise 
oh God, yeah, that is a huge deal. You know what I mean? Yeah. To be denied all that pri privilege that other people have, uh, that take that people take for granted, to be still paying the price for being born outside of marriage in 1965, just beggars belief, particularly when we have marriage equality and we've appealed the eighth and, you know, we're a pretty funky society now. Um, it's just strange that the, the government and the church still wield that power and they are still colluding with each other. And I think that just startles me because I think we are a progressive country. We're an extraordinary group of, you know, an extraordinary nation. And I think What's been lovely since, you know, for the last year or so is the level of public support we have in our fight for our rights on all levels in terms of the Commission investigation and in terms of our identity rights. Support we have, like run the repeal the seal campaign when they wanted to seal the records for 30 years. The public broke the doll server, you know, in response to stop that from happening. It was extraordinary. And the same in, the, in the, the last campaign to stop the dissolution of the commission and give us our rights to our birth certificates. You know, there were there were three and a half thousand people visited my website in, in the space of a week to send letters to their TDs yeah. and senators. And I think that has been really heartening, you know, because everybody in Ireland has some connection to this issue. They either know somebody or there's a family issue. It's quite clear from thousands of people that I've spoken to over the years they say, oh, I know so-and-so, or oh, my cousin, or oh, my sister. You know, this is an issue. And I think that the, the, the response from, you know, the public to these campaigns really says that, going, yeah, this is part of our history, you know. Um, and it, it really needs to be acknowledged. It's not even taught in our schools. This significant chunk of our history that still has a legacy that we have to deal with every day of our lives is not being taught in the curriculum, which is very strange. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think, and I know myself, like even when I became a journalist, you know, mm. you'd start covering issues like these that when you started asking questions, well, everybody knew something, but yet it wasn't in, like I had no recollection of ever hearing anything about it in school. Um, yeah. And it's that, it's the secrecy around it, the, the covert nature of it, you know, Obviously, yeah. it's it's not my story, um, and I I've no idea how hard it must have been for you in the in the past number of years to go and to do what you've done and to do it and still be so open about it. Mm. But I'd be pretty sure that there'd be some people who kind of got some way along the road and just didn't have the energy to keep battling on. Absolutely, I mean I know people who've done that. I've, every time. I speak out, I get at least 20 emails from complete strangers telling me their stories. And a lot of them say, I tried, I gave up because it's really hard, you know, and I could have stopped searching in 2002 when the block first, you know, series of roadblocks started. But I didn't. I kept going um, and I don't know where I found the strength to do it. It was very demanding. It was very hard, but not everybody can. And that is the kind of almost you feel that that's what they're trying to do is go send her enough letters saying go away we're not going to give you any information in the hope that you will give up searching uh, and a lot of people do and I think that's very sad you know um, and a lot of people are still fighting for justice around they're looking for their babies you know I mean yesterday you know we, had, we are this week we had Mother's Day so it's kind of you know people are still you know thinking about babies that are in you know in septic tank somewhere or in a mass grave and grounds of mother and baby home and that's desperately sad and there's no reason for it the information is there but it's hidden it's kept secret you know um, and those women are being denied their rights and I, I, it makes me so angry I didn't I didn't want to become an activist I kind of fell into it 
as an artist when I when I wrote uh, Postscript with my friend Michelle Forbes, which is a play about my experiences as an, an adoptee trying to trace birth family. But the activism kind of came out of that. It turned me into an activist, but I didn't know it at the time. And I didn't know how much energy and time I would be giving to this, you know, fight for justice. But I'm glad I'm doing it because not everybody can speak out. It's very, very hard. And I can only imagine how difficult it is, as I said. And then, you know, it's one thing to be going through this and doing the fight and and, and speaking out about it. But then, like, you know, going back a bit, even just to sit down to start working on creating Postscript, like to... To put all of this in, in black and white, it can't have been easy. No. And do you know, the weird thing was, I actually didn't, we didn't set out to write a play about adoption at all. I had an idea and I went to Michelle. We were, we were really good mates and we'd always said we'd work on something together. Um, and I went to her and I said, Look, I have an idea about, you know, I loved letter writing. And I said, it's an idea about like the lost art of letter writing and post when you move house all the time, you know, post gets lost. What letters have you missed? And I had this whole idea in my head. So we went into a room to create that, um, except the adoption story kept kind of coming up. And at the time in contemporary theatre, you know, a lot of people were writing their own personal stories and performing them. And Michelle and uh, Louisa, a friend of ours, was in the room as well. And she said, look, you should write that story. And I was like, no way, absolutely no way. I'm not standing on stage as myself telling that story. It's too personal. It's too hard. Uh, I'm an actor. I want to play characters. I don't want to play myself. So they kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, and eventually the story started to take shape and the play happened. And I think that was activism. But I didn't realize it at the time. I thought I just as an artist had written a play for me to perform about something that people didn't know very much about. But the reaction was phenomenal. And it opened a lot of doors in terms of activism because I was telling a story that hadn't really been told or hadn't been heard. Um, and the details of what it was to be an adoptee in Ireland weren't out there. Our narratives as adoptees have been lost, essentially, once we were adopted. Um, you know, we have some ideas to what happened to mothers in those mother and baby homes. As adoptees, we were adopted. End of story. So this was quite radical in what I was doing and how I was doing it. So that was the start of the activism for me. But I didn't realize it at the time until, you know, the public reacted the way they did. Colleagues in the business loads of uh, adoptees and birth mothers approached me you know they're, 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 we, everywhere we went it booked out you know and it's unfortunately the play is still relevant the last time yeah. we did it was, was in london uh, in february uh, before the lockdown and you know place was packed with irish people who'd moved to london who had come out of mother and baby homes and industrial schools and it was like oh my god we're still we're still in the midst of this and, you know something that started in 2013 can as a society, do you think, and obviously I'm not asking you to answer on behalf of every adoptee, um, but do you think can we heal if we're, if we're still surround, if there's some element of secrecy still surrounding it? No, we can't. And the more, you know, you know the more attempts are made to hide, destroy, uh, not acknowledge the gaping wound that is in this country, because that's what it is. Um, and what's happened over the last few months, particularly, People who've never told their stories, you know, fill the airways, they fill the, the O'Duffy's show on Liveline, sharing their stories, people who've never spoken. It is now pouring out. Those stories are pouring out. Um, and unless we fully acknowledge them, um, give justice, bring justice to the forefront in this fight, 
Um, it's never going to go away. There's no point, you know, there's no point in pretending it isn't happening. Um, the Commission of Investigation report was a, supposedly an answer to all of this. We do a report, everything's grand, we wash our hands, we blame society and we move on. That didn't happen. The report was so bad, mm. it actually ignited a fire, you know, in people, uh, in, in, you know, the general public and anyone who's affected by the issue. But we have to deal with it. We cannot keep pushing it away and pretending it isn't happening and delaying and denying people's rights. They are fundamental, basic human rights. If we keep doing that, it is not going to go away. Because, of, you know, they may not be listening to us as a generation, but I've met hundreds of young men and women whose mothers were born in mother and baby homes, and they are so angry with how their parents have been treated. So it's not going to go away. And I think what's happening now is the stories are hemorrhaging out there. It's very painful. It's a very, very raw time for survivors. But it, I'm glad in a way that it's happening because there's no pushing it back into the bottle and putting the lid on it and, you know, going, OK, that's grand. We can move on. We really need to face it and properly face it and deal with the legacy that we've been left with before we can really move on and call ourselves a new Ireland. How would you like to see that legacy dealt with? Well, firstly, um, I think the, the Commission investigation report has to be rejected by the government as fundamentally flawed and offensive to survivors, in, in, particularly in light of their findings. No incarceration, no um, evidence of forced adoption. All of those things that they said were absolutely horrific uh, and untrue because the testimonies will, will, will testify to that. Also, the way that the testimonies were damaged and misquoted, taken out of context, that it needs to be looked at. So that, that has to be dealt with the report. We need our birth certs. We need a right to our identities as adoptees. We need our medical records. We need our birth information. That has to happen much faster than it has been happening. They've been dragging their feet on it for so long. That needs to happen. Um, our basic human rights need to be given to us. There needs to be an exav ex excavation of all exhumation, I beg your pardon, exhumation in, in, and an inquest um, for all of those babies, 9,000 babies that died in their, this period of history. We need to exhume the graves in Tume, Besbra and all the other mother and baby homes where there are babies buried in mass graves. We need to deal with it and have inquests, give the families closure, give them their rights to their, to their families, to the babies that, are, that were dumped in there um, and were not buried respectfully or anything else. Um, so we need a great sweeping change. We need justice to happen and stop the delaying and the dragging of their feet. It took five years to produce this report, the Commission Investigation Report, which is not fit for purpose. It's time to give us our rights and stop wasting lives. People are dying. There's a generation of people that are dying without seeing justice. And that is absolutely disgraceful. I'm very conscious of how difficult it must be for you to, to speak so openly to us. And I know you've been doing it for a long time now. And I'm conscious that you said you started out, you know, you wanted to be an artist. And you were going to yeah. go in and you were, um, you were, there was no way you were going to speak publicly. It was too personal to you. Mm -hmm. And then, lo and behold, that led you into your role now as, as an advocate for adoptees nationwide. How has that impacted on your, your creative life? Um, well, I suppose starting with the play, it kind of went from there. Um, I... It, it kind of, I suppose it colours a lot of the issues I'm interested in. Um, the plays that I've written subsequently 
though I didn't set out for them to be issue-based plays. Mm-hmm. I went in and wrote about something that interests me. Um, they kind of have had, you know, a kind of this kind of a look at a minority um, whose rights are being eroded have kind of come into, you know, a lot of what I've written as well. Um, though I never set out to, to write that kind of play, but I suppose I'm always looking for the voices that aren't heard um, and, you know, giving voice to them within a theatrical context or issues that aren't being dealt with, giving voice to them using theatre, using my um, my instinct as an artist, I suppose, um, to, to like, the, the, the power of art is extraordinary, you know what I mean? We, we are so lucky to have uh, the platforms that we have. So it's kind of informed a lot of my work moving onwards, though I haven't written about adoption much after that. I've spoken a lot about it. I do find myself looking at voices that are not heard or communities that are not represented. And that kind of informs my writing in terms of playwriting a lot, you know. I spoke to the contemporary artist Aideen Barry on the podcast a couple of months oh, back. Yeah. And uh, just as you were speaking there, it just came back to me. She's had this line. She said that as creative people, we have more metaphoric nerve endings. We're more sensitive. Yeah. And I, I have to wonder, you know, um, the fact that you are an artist and you've been able to be so creative in how you've told your own story, but in you've been so forthright about it. I wonder if you weren't artistically inclined, would you have had the ability to to, to do it? You know, would and to be an advocate on behalf of so many people who wouldn't have the well, the will perhaps, or even the courage to speak. Yeah, I mean, it certainly informs it because, uh, I mean, it's hard speaking out. It's hard telling your personal story over and over again. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I think being an artist has certainly helped me to do it. You know, even being a performer, being a, being an actor, walking on stage and, you know, holding it together, not falling apart, you know what I mean, <laughs> not sobbing, uh, you know, calming the nerves, being able to speak, you know, be articulate be calm, all of those things. Um, it certainly helps that I'm an artist and I'm, I, I'm not sure how I would find myself speaking out if I wasn't an artist. I think I'm used to, to talking and to, you know, to being in front of audiences and, being, and speaking um, either as myself or as a character or whatever. So I think that certainly helps. It doesn't make it like, blissfully easy, but it does make it, you know, it gives me a bit of um, confidence, I suppose. Um, that other people would f- have difficulty with, understandably. It's, it's quite, you know, as I'm sure you know yourself, standing in front of a camera and talking or being on the radio and talking or even doing the podcast now, it can be nerve-wracking. And I still get nerve-wracked before any interview that I have to do. But, you know, I'm used to pushing those nerves down and, and going on and doing a show or, you know, doing a, whatever else, whatever I'm doing artistically. So I think I think being an artist certainly is part of me speaking out. There's no doubt about that. And also, you know, the privilege of being an artist, um, you know, gave me gave me a platform to create work around this issue and to get it out there, you know, which is significant. I'm reminded of an editor who once told me, if you're not get, if you're not still getting nervous every time the mic that light goes red, then you're not doing it right. You know that Absolutely. you have to you have to have that sense of nervous energy in order to get it across properly. It's, it's the adrenaline, you know, that has to be pumping for you to get your brain as sharp as a tack. You know what I mean? That you're 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 there. If you're not nervous, you know, I'd be worried. If I wasn't nervous, I'd feel that I'm. You know, what's the point? It's about being in the zone. It's about being right there, present. And unless your heart is, you know, 
beating a tad faster in your chest um, and you're, you know, keyed into what's going on around you, it's, I think it's, it's, it's a huge part of it. It's how it needs to be, really, you know. The past year has been a year like no other for like everybody but then you had this the report and all of this publicity around it and you had at the same time then the industry well brought to its knees in many ways where like you know we didn't have theatres concerts gigs nothing happening all year so how has it been for you? Um, I've actually touch wood I've been okay I think being a writer certainly helps um, so, you know, I, I miss acting in front of, you know, in front of an audience. The last time I was on stage was in London um, doing Postscript, my play, and also doing a stand-up comedy gig, which I love, love doing stand-up comedy. So I miss the live audience. Um, I'm very sad that theatre is not there or the opportunity to work in theatre, um, though everybody is really pushing the boat out in terms of trying to keep things going. Um, I don't know when it's going to change um, and it's, it's deeply worrying and it's a very, very difficult time for artists. I've managed to keep going as a writer. Um, I also teach um, performance skills to writers and poets. I've been doing that online. Um, so I've managed to kind of keep ticking over um, and also working with the Abbey Theatre on, on some projects. It, I've been very lucky, um, you know, thank God. Um, and now everybody else isn't as lucky. And I've also had a little bit of um, TV and film work as well, which has been great because, you know, they don't have the audience factor. So they mm -hmm. were able to rise above it and put all the COVID compliance stuff in. But I, I feel very sad about theatre and I really hope it comes back very, very soon because it is it's sorely missed by everybody working in the arts. There's something about going to a theatre production that nothing else can replace. It's, you know, the intimacy of it, the, the, the peace and quiet around it and, and the level of focus that, you know, when you go into that darkened theatre and that's it, that's the, the plays on in front of you or the show, whatever it is. And, you know, they've, they've got you like you're, you're, you're stuck on the seat, whether or not you're enjoying it or not. So like they've, they've got your attention and, you know, I don't know, I kind of tend to come out of theatre feeling refreshed. Yeah. Absolutely. There's nothing about it. I mean, there's nothing to compare with live performance, be it, a, you know, a music gig mm -hmm. or theatre or comedy or whatever. I mean, there's something about that connection, you know, with, with an audience, um, as terrifying and all as it is. It's magic. It's pure magic. Live performance is extraordinary. And it is like, you know, it's, it's a gathering of people all connected and all there because they want to be there and they're watching something. And it's, it's pure magic. You, you can never replace live performance. So the sooner we get back to it, the better. What made you consider stand-up comedy? I think it was menopause. Okay. <laughs> Quite honest. Menopause is, is tough. It can be very tough. Um, but it also is incredibly empowering. And I, I created a night in the Sugar Club two years ago, just around the theme of menopause. Uh, and we packed. It was amazing. Uh, women of all ages uh, and men came to it. Um, but there's something, there's a, you become quite empowered. Um, and you also get to the point where you're just going, uh, you say yes to a lot more things. People go, do you want to do this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, grant. Um, so somebody asked me and I went, ah, sure, I'll give it a go. I was absolutely breaking it every single time. But I loved it because I could talk about things that didn't need the framework of a play. Um, you know, it, it was still live performance and I could talk. I have, I have two particular sets and one of them is all about menopause. And it just went down the stormer. Um, and I realized that you know, the experience I had of being on stage helped. Now, it's a very, very different thing. And I really have such admiration for comedians because it is so tough. 
but is deeply satisfying. The adrenaline goes off the scale. You actually think you're just going to have a heart attack and, and just end up lying on the floor. But I loved it. And I did about a, I did a year of it just before lockdown. The last bef- thing I did on stage was, was uh, a gig in London uh, for International Women's Day. Um, and I absolutely love it. It's, it's just brilliant. It's, it's, it's a chance to talk about things in even stuff that's quite loaded, but in a funny way and to get people's attention and to get a response. Um, and it's just super empowering. I absolutely love it. Now, I know you're involved in a project with the Abbey Theatre at the moment that was uh, that was launched on St. Patrick's Day there yesterday. So can you just tell yes. us a little bit about that? It's home part one. Um, shortly after the report, the Abbey have been very, very good to me uh, over the years. Uh, Graham and Neil have really kept up with this issue in Ireland around the mother and baby homes. And they brought my play, and Michelle's play, Proscript, into the Abbey in 2017. And they've always come back to me when, when you know, as an activist going, is there anything we can do? Is there anything we can do? So a couple of days after the report was published, Graham rang me, uh, uh, artistic director of the Abbey, and said, look, what can we do to help? Uh, he said, I have an idea around a project and I'd like you to lead it. Um, so it all happened very, very fast. Um, he put me with a team of editors um, to gather as much um, testimonies uh, from survivors and archival documentation um, and put it together, shape it and present it, film it, film it and present it uh, on St. Patrick's Night. An extraordinary undertaking, hugely um important um, to to give the National Theatre in that way, to give survivors back their voices that were taken from them by the Commission Investigation Report. Um, and it was, it's, it's been an extraordinary project, um, an absolute privilege to do it. Um, the team that we had around us in the Abbey, plus the, the six t- uh, editorial staff that I was working with as well, were phenomenal and we pulled it together very, very quickly. Um, but it has had an amazing response and I'm so I'm so heartened by it. I really am that they were willing to support us in this way. I think it's, you know, it it was a raw night for people, I think, um, just for survivors, just hearing the details. But to see that chunk of history uh, laid out on the National Theatre stage um, was extraordinary. And I think it's really, really significant. Um, And it'll be on until the 17th of July on on the Abbey um, YouTube website. Um, if anybody wants to have a look, I recommend it for people who know nothing about this issue to people who know everything about this issue. It's hugely important. Well, and we will be sure to check it out. And as you said, it's running right up until July on the Abbey Theatre's uh, YouTube account. So we do recommend that you do uh, take a look. Noelle, I ask all my guests this question. Um, and your story, I think, is one that's just so unique. But I'm wondering... What does storytelling mean to you? Storytelling to me, it's funny, I was just thinking about that actually today. Storytelling to me is a start, middle and an end. And I think that for me as an an adoptee was um, something I never took, couldn't take for granted. I was prevented from having that. My birth was obliterated, essentially. Details were taken from me uh, and... um, I have the middle, hopefully, well, I will definitely have the end. But that missing bit for me, I think, as a storyteller, give me a start, middle and an end. You can can tell it whatever way you want. You can move them around and say, well, I'm going to start this story in the middle. I'm going to start it at the end and work back. But for me, storytelling is about a start, middle and an end. And I think that has kind of 
I don't know, sort of pushed me forward as an artist to go, if I don't have that start, middle and end, I will create many, many stories that have it. Well, Noelle Brown, advocate, activist, artist, the list goes on. You could look at Noelle Brown's website and see just how talented this woman is and just how interesting her career has been. Noelle, if people do want to check you out and find out more about you, where's the best place to go? Well, I have a website, noellebrown.com. Um, so if you want to check me out there, it's pretty much everything there. I'll be updating it soon as well as things keep moving forward. But yeah, noellebrown.com. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your very hectic schedule for talking to us in Ireland Creates today. I really do appreciate it. And I hope our listeners have enjoyed hearing more from you and maybe have gained a, a deeper understanding into the life of creatives in Ireland and the life of adoptees as well. Thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Noelle Brown. She has done amazing work as both an artist and an adoption rights activist. And I think you'll agree after hearing her story. I hope you go to the Abbey Theatre's YouTube channel to check out Noelle's latest project, Home Part One. It's going to be up online until July 17th. So you've got plenty of time available globally. So please do check it out. It is a fantastic project. That's it now for this week. I'll be back next week with another episode of Ireland Creates. In the meantime, stay safe and remember to share your story.